Thank you, Molly. Good evening, everybody. As Molly mentioned, I'm Amy Snover. I direct the Climate Impacts Group here at University of Washington, and I'm very honored tonight to welcome and introduce our speaker, Dr. Anthony Lazarowitz. Anthony is the director of the Yale Program on Climate Change Communication and a research scientist at the School of Forestry and Environmental Studies at Yale University. He's an expert on public opinion and engagement with the issues of climate change and the environment. One of the first rules of communication is know your audience. Anthony's research helps make this possible through his investigation of the psychological, cultural, and political factors that influence environmental beliefs, attitudes, policy support, and behavior. He conducts research at the global, national, and local scales, including many surveys of the American public. His findings have been used by scientists and science communicators across the country to enable more productive, targeted conversations about the major issues of our time. Dr. Louis Zarowitz has also conducted the first study of worldwide public values, attitudes, and behaviors regarding sustainability, including environmental protection, economic prosperity, and human development. He has served as a consultant to the John F. Kennedy School of Government at Harvard University, the United Nations Development Program, the Gallup World Poll, and the World Economic Forum. He is a recipient of the Friend of the Planet Award from the National Center for Science Education and the Mitofsky Innovator Award from the American Association of Public Opinion Research. He is also the host of Climate Connections, a daily national public radio program and podcast. So you can see that we are very lucky to have him joining us here tonight at the University of Washington. So please join me in welcoming Dr. Anthony Lazarowitz. Thank you. Thank you. Well, good evening, everyone. Uh, thank you so much for all coming today. And also, thank you so much to Amy and to the University of Washington for the invitation to come. Uh, it is such a pleasure to be back in the Pacific Northwest, otherwise known as Ecotopia. Uh, one of my all-time favorite places to be. Uh, I miss it dearly, I'll say, personally. Um, so let me do a little bit more of an explanation of who we are and what we do at the Yale Program on Climate Change Communication. Uh, can you hear me okay? How about in the nosebleed seats in the back? Oh, no? Okay, can we get a little more volume, perhaps? I'll try to speak up as well. Okay, great. Um, so at, uh, at our program, we do two main things. Research and public engagement. On the research side, our primary questions is how do mass societies respond to the issue of climate change and other global environmental problems? So what do people understand and misunderstand about the causes, the consequences, and the potential solutions to climate change? How do they perceive the risks, so the likelihood and severity of different types of impacts from wildfires to sea level rise to human health impacts and so on? What kinds of policies do people support or oppose? And what kinds of behaviors are people engaged in around climate change and energy? Uh, and what are they willing to get more engaged in? And when I say behavior, we look at four main types. First is how people actually use, waste, or conserve energy at home and on the road. 
Secondly is consumer behavior. To what extent will they prefer the products and services that are better for the planet? But also, and interestingly, to what extent are they willing to reward or punish companies for their action or lack of action? And I'll just say as an aside that one of the things that we see very interestingly is that Americans are generally much more willing to vote with their dollars than they are to vote at the ballot box on climate change. And that's an important, actually that's an important lever of change in today's society. Uh, third is social behavior. So how do we talk about climate change? Or more often, how do we not talk about climate change? And why is that? But also the role of what's called social norms, these unwritten cultural rules that guide much of our daily life. Okay, and I can see looking out at this audience that many people are gonna know exactly what I'm talking about here. But when I grew up, smoking was everywhere. It was in bars, it was in restaurants. I just flew across the country. I would have been trapped you know, with a seatbelt stuck to me with somebody's puffing away in a metal tube with other people puffing away. If I was to pull out a cigarette and light it right now, most of you would recoil in horror. Okay? That's because that underlying social norm has shifted so dramatically in the society from a behavior that wasn't just the norm, it was glorified. Okay? But that has been a fundamental shift. And so those social norms turn out to be really important around climate and energy uh, behavior as well. But then last but not least, we also spent a lot of time looking at political behavior. What leads people not just to support a policy or not, or to support one candidate or another, though we do that work, but really what we're interested in is what leads people to become active citizens? Okay, to actually say, I'm gonna get involved. P basically, people who say, you know what, I'm not gonna sit on the sidelines and watch while the world burns. I'm gonna roll up my sleeves and do what I can within my sphere of influence to change. And then, as Amy talked about, ultimately, though, we are scientists, so we're kind of geeky, and we, our ultimate question is answering why. What are the underlying psychological, cultural, political reasons why some people get really engaged with these issues, others are kind of apathetic, and some are downright hostile and dismissive, okay? And then out of that body of work, we then have developed a whole series of insights that we then try in our own small way to convert into our own effort to engage a mass public. And that's primarily through this national radio program called Climate Connections. I'll talk a little bit more, and if we have time, I'll, sh I'll play a few episodes for you at the end. But basically, that whole program is really uh, informed by what we've learned from our research. Uh, and I'll talk more about that in a moment. Okay. so. Let me begin as an academic, sitting here at an academic institution with a proposition. It would be great, it would be wonderful if everybody in America could have the equivalent of Climate Change 101, okay? A full semester course devoted to here's how the climate system works, here's what the causes are, here's what the consequences are, here's what the solutions are, okay? That would be great but that's never gonna happen. That's never gonna happen. Now I'm not saying, by the way, that there aren't in fact millions of Americans who do want to know the details, that do want to know more about this issue and are asking those questions. And I would say that as a community of scientists and people who work on this issue, it is our responsibility, no, it is our duty to go more than halfway to meet them where they are and try to help them understand it as best as we can. But that's not most people. 
Most people are too busy, they don't have the background, they don't have the training, they don't have the interest. They got a thousand other things on their plate. Okay. So the real question is, you have to imagine that most people have limited shelf space in their brain for this issue. Okay. Maybe enough space up there for five ideas. <laughs> so what would you want them to know? Okay. And this is a question for all of my, my scientist colleagues. What is the most important thing that people actually understand as a base that people understand about climate change? Okay. Is it important that they really understand how the carbon cycle works in all of its glory? Probably not. Is it vital that they understand exactly how many parts per million of CO2 there is in the atmosphere at any given time? Probably not. Okay. So in the course of our research, and along with many of our colleagues around the country, we think we've actually figured out what at least five key ideas are. Okay. Five basic facts. And moreover, we've boiled those five key facts down to just 10 words. But a friend of mine in Congress writes haikus, so she converted it to a haiku, so it's 11 words, okay? I'll give you the 11-word version. Okay, you ready? Here we go. Scientists agree. It's real. It's us. It's bad. But there's hope. Okay? Now, this seems deceptively simple. But these are actually really fundamental ideas. And in fact, each one of these ideas, in fact, I would call it a, a meta idea. It's an idea that actually sits on top of dozens and hundreds of examples that each reinforce each of these. Okay? Here are all the different ways that we know that climate change is happening. Here are the dozens of ways that we know that it's humans that is causing it this time. Not the sun, not volcanoes, not orbital mechanics, not all the other reasons that get thrown out there. This time, it's us. Here are the thousands of ways that it's bad now and going to get much worse if we continue on the current path. Okay? And then perhaps most importantly these days, this one, that there's something we can do about it, that there's hope. Okay? And I'll talk more about that. Okay, so given that basic structure, how are we doing in this country? Okay, so now I'm going to draw on our national surveys that we've been conducting for over a decade. We do two a year, one in the fall, one in the spring. We're actually just about to launch one right after the election because we want to see where the country is as we head into the next congressional session. Um, and so what I'm going to show you is the results of all those studies over the past decade, and you'll see some patterns along the way. So anyway, how are we doing on some of these key ideas? Well, here's how, where we are in terms of is it happening? Is it real? And we see that here in the United States, and this dates back to the fall of 2008, all these different years ending up just a few months ago in March of this year. And back in 2008, we were at our high watermark. Okay? If everyone remembers back in those days of 2008, very different time, actually, um, right before the crash, right before the financial crisis, uh, when, and I'll say this now, I guess, uh, you had two candidates for president who both talked about climate change. The Republican nominee for president of the United States was Senator John McCain, who for years was one of the primary champions of climate action in Congress. Climate change was in the Republican pl party platform. 
that it is real, that it is human cause, that it is a serious problem that we are going to solve with our, cons our conservative principles. But McCain loses, and Obama takes power, and among the many things that happens in this period, and it was a very busy time, uh, one of the things that happens is this huge drop in belief that climate change is happening, a 14 percentage point drop in even accepting the reality. And this same number showed up in Gallup and Pew and all of our other university colleagues' data as well. Okay? So there was something really big that happened right here, and I'll just cut to the bottom line of it, having studied that a lot, it was the rise of the Tea Party. Okay? This far rightward lurch of the Republican Party from literally saying climate change is a serious problem and we're going to deal with it, to within two years going all the way out to the last twig on the end of the limb where it became a standard talking point that climate change is a hoax. And we've been slowly, slowly, slowly working our way back ever since until just the past couple years and now we're basically back to where we were, okay? 10 years later. Okay, 70%, that's good. In Japan, it's like 98%, but you know, we got something to grow on. Okay, how about human cost? Not quite so good. Here, only 58%, hey, we, we're at an all-time high though, 58%, uh, say that climate change is human caused, And that's important. Because if you don't think it's human-caused, if it's just natural, then it's nothing we have anything to do with, nothing we can do much about, right? And why would I want to do things like pass a price on carbon? Doesn't make much sense. So this is a number that needs to go up. And then we get to things like understanding of the scientific consensus. So there have been multiple studies using very different techniques that have all converged on basically the same finding, which is that 97% of climate scientists are convinced that human-caused global warming is happening. Now there is plenty of scientific debate over the cutting edge, right? Like, will the thermohaline circulation system of the Atlantic Ocean shut down over the course of the next century or two? Lots of debate. You know, what will happen to the Indian monsoon in the mid-century, okay? Lots of debate. Well, is the, is the Amazon rainforest really in danger of potential uh, complete collapse and, and transition to a, a grassland? Yes, there's debate about that. But about the basics, that this is real, and that it's human-caused, and that it's going to be a serious problem, there is no legitimate debate about that. And yet, only 15% of Americans understand that that consensus exists. And moreover, we find that's a consequential misunderstanding because most people are not experts about this. Okay? If your perception is that the scientists are still arguing about the reality of the problem, most Americans essentially adopt a wait-and-see attitude. They're basically saying, hey, scientists, go off in a room somewhere, talk it out, and if it's a real problem, you'll come tell us, right? Not knowing, of course, that the scientific community did that decades ago. That number is a result of at least three major uh, reasons, and I'll just quickly go through them. One, scientists aren't great communicators, period. But also, it's not in our culture to talk about the stuff that we know. Okay? Science is interested in the cutting edge of knowledge. Okay? That's where you get your credit. That's where you get your tenure review. That's where you get everything, uh, the benefits of an academic career, is being on the cutting edge, not just simply repeating, repeating, repeating what we know. 
I can't publish a paper that says gravity exists. Okay? I don't get any credit for that. Okay? And likewise, scientists don't get much credit for going out and saying, it's real, people, it's human caused, it's real, it's human caused, it's real, it's human caused. Okay? So one, as scientists, we haven't done a great job communicating ourselves, but that's not entirely our, just our job. Secondly, the media has long had a tendency, it's gotten better in recent years, of what was called false balance. And you've all seen this. A cable TV show puts up uh, a an esteemed climate scientist on one side, who's not a very good communicator and doesn't look all that great, uh, up against somebody who's uh, basically a flack for a think tank or a fossil fuel company or what have you, who looks great on TV and is great on TV. And then you hear, as a layperson, these two dueling perspectives about the reality and seriousness of climate change. As a layperson, you say, gosh, this seems like it's 50-50, okay? But it's not. And then you also can't ignore the fact that this very thing has been one of the primary strategies of those uh, companies and organizations that have been trying to block action on climate change. This is a strategy that was invented by the tobacco industry. It's in their documents. Uh, that their job was in the tobacco wars was not to convince Americans that smoking was good for you. They knew they couldn't do that. But they did know that as long as Americans still thought that the science and the medical uh, research was uncertain about is smoking good for you or, or bad for you or not, people would continue to smoke. And they did for decades. Literally, these companies raked in billions of extra dollars because they were, as they said it themselves, doubt is our product. That exact same strategy was lifted root and branch out of the tobacco wars and grafted straight into climate change, including some of the exact same scientists who are disputing that smoking is bad for you are some of the same scientists who've been arguing climate change isn't real or it's not human caused or it's not a serious problem or hey, it'll even be good for us, okay? That's not an accident. Okay, and that all flows into then one of the most important questions, and this really is about worry, uh, a really important emotion, and it stands in for a whole host of other uh, measures of risk perception. Um, but here, I mean, good news, we're at an all-time high, basically, at 62% who are at least somewhat or very worried. But really, the important one is that. Only 21% of Americans are very worried about climate change. So why is that? Well, there's a number of reasons, but one of the most important is something we discovered a you know, long time ago, which is that for most people, this is a distant problem. Distant in time, the impacts won't be felt for a generation or more, and distant in space. This is about polar bears, or maybe some developing countries, but not the United States, not Washington, not Seattle, not my neighborhood, not my friends, not my family, or any of the people and places that I care about. It's psychologically distant. It just becomes one of a hundred other issues that are out there. I kind of wish somebody might do something about it, but I don't see why it's important. I don't see why it's urgent. I don't see why it's a priority. And it's critical that we help people understand that it's not distant. Climate change is here and now and being felt and experienced and suffered through everywhere in the United States as well as around the world. We'll come back to that. 
Okay, and so what does that mean? Oh, sorry. Erase that. So <laughs> one other thing I wanted to get at here is one of my favorite techniques. I've been doing this for years and years. Um, it's very simple. It's a form of free association. Uh, and it's really uh, a, a question that we can all participate in. I have a completely unrepresentative sample of the American public here, so we get to play along. <laughs> and here's the question. What's the first thought or image that pops into your mind when you think of global warming? Now, don't say anything. Now, just curious. How many people out there had something come to their mind about melting ice? Hands up. Look around. Hands up. Wave them. Okay. Sea ice on the, on the Arctic Ocean disappearing, melting glaciers around the world, ice shells breaking off of Antarctica. Okay. I read minds. Okay. Well, it turns out that's what most Americans think, too. This data, by the way, goes all the way back to 2003, and it really hasn't changed that much since. Okay? That one of the first things many people think of is melting ice. Now, why is that? Because you have been exposed to that image, that image and others like it, over and over and over and over and over and over again. I can't tell you how many great articles there have been done by reporters. I mean, they're great articles on all the details about droughts and floods and wildfires and all this kind of stuff. And the editor takes the article and says, hey, great article. Hey, photo editor, get me a photo on climate change. Picture of melting ice, maybe with a polar bear on it. Okay. This is an image that you have been exposed to over and over. And because you are visual beings first, it's the pictures that you tend to, that you have at the core of your memory and your, uh, your ultimately your mental models, uh, becomes one of the most important things that you immediately think of and try to build a network of associations around. Now, this particular image has a couple consequences. One, um, is actually, I would say, positive. Because if any of us take a glass of ice outside on a warm summer day, what happens? It melts. I didn't have to show you a single graph. I didn't have to explain any physics. You know in your bones, through repeated experience, exactly what happens when you expose ice to warm temperatures. It melts. So that particular icon does help reinforce for people the sense that this is real. This is happening. Okay, those wonderful pictures of before and after, you know, 50 years ago, 100 years ago glaciers versus today. Powerful. Okay, but there's a downside. All those people that were thinking of melting ice, could you put your hands back up, please? Okay, now I want you to keep your hand up if you live on the shores of the Arctic Ocean, in Antarctica, or right next to a melting glacier. <laughs> Nobody. Really? We got a big room here. It reinforces the sense that this is distant. Okay? This is something that's happening at the poles. This is something happening at high altitudes. It's not something that's happening where we live. Okay? And people are not connecting the dots between warming causes uh, uh, melting and you know, the shuffling off of ice of, say, Antarctica or Greenland. And that's going to cause sea levels to rise, which in turn is going to cause uh, coastal flooding and coastal erosion on our shorelines. That's a whole causal chain. Not just X causes Y, it's A causes B causes C causes D. 
And moreover, they don't understand the power of these downward spirals, these really scary, vicious cycles of where warming causes melting, which causes, which changes, of course, the, the albedo or the, the color of the ocean, which makes it darker, which allows more sunlight to be absorbed by the water, which, of course, makes the water warmer, which causes more melting, which causes warmer water, which causes more melting, and so on, until it becomes a feedback effect. And scientists are legitimately arguing now or, or suggesting that we may lose uh, uh, ice in the Arctic uh, by the, certainly by the end of the century with global consequences. What happens in the, it's like Vegas, you know that great slogan, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas? What happens in the Arctic does not stay in the Arctic. Okay, it, it will affect all of us. Okay. So that's really important is that we don't understand that this connects to us and then finally you know, how much time do you spend in your day or any time watching ice melt? <laughs> is it inherently fascinating? Does it frighten you to watch ice melt? Okay, those pictures that you've been exposed to over and over again, sometimes they're dramatic, you know, big blocks of ice falling off of a, of a glacier. It's, it's nice, makes a big roar, but there are no human beings in those pictures, okay? And that's really important because ultimately this is an issue that is going to have profound consequences for human beings, okay? not just icebergs, as glorious as icebergs are, by the way. Okay. So all that then leads to the fact that we don't prioritize this very much. Now, I understand this is a complex chart, and I do expect you to memorize it. There will be a quiz at the end. Um, but really, it's actually quite simple because all we've done is asked Americans, how important will the candidates' positions on the following issues be when you decide who you will vote for in the 2018 congressional election? Those who haven't noticed, we have an election coming up on Tuesday. So where do we find among registered voters or is global warming? 15th out of 28 different issues. It's actually a little better than it has been in the past, but still, it's not a priority. It's not a priority. And if you've got a limited agenda as a political institutions, you're gonna put most of your attention up here. But what's also fascinating is when you break it down by liberal Democrats, moderate conservative Democrats, liberal moderate Republicans or conservative Republicans, two important things. One, how polarized we are now, okay? Americans are more polarized about climate change today than about abortion. Climate change. And that's the political dynamic that we're stuck with right at the moment. But also importantly, among liberal Democrats, among the Democratic base, climate change is number four. And environmental protection was number three. I, I gotta say, that's stunning. That this issue has become one of the top priority issues among one of the two dominant political parties in the United States. That was not true six years ago. It has dramatically increased among this particular political party. There's obviously a lot of work to be done over here. But that is very different than where we were uh, a decade ago. Okay, now I don't wanna leave you though with just a sense of, oh my God, we're so, it's all politics and we're all so polarized and so on. It's true, we are polarized about climate change. 
But we're not actually so polarized. In fact, we've even reached some degree of social consensus around some of the solutions. So here's a bunch of policies. Um, and what we find is that there's strong support across the board for a whole bunch of energy policies that are going to be part of the solutions. So funding more research into renewable energy sources such as solar and wind power, okay? 87% of Americans support that. You know how hard it is to write a survey question that you can get 87% of people to support? <laughs> I dare say if I asked people, do you like apple pie, I wouldn't get 87% of people saying that. 76% um, of, of Republicans support clean energy, and this stands in for a whole bunch of clean energy questions, by the way. Generating renewable energy, such as solar and wind, on public land, overwhelming support. Providing tax rebates for people who purchase energy-efficient vehicles or solar panels, strong support. Regulating carbon dioxide, the primary greenhouse gas, as a pollutant, strong support, including 61% of conservatives. It's only once you get to requiring electric utilities that you find less than a majority support there. And this shows up in other ways. Now this is not 1631, by the way. This is a national number. It's a different question. How much you support or oppose requiring fossil fuel companies to pay a carbon tax, not a fee. You actually use the word tax, because we want people to go into anaphylactic shock, <laughs> and use the money to reduce other taxes, such as income tax, by an equal amount. 71% of Americans support that concept. Okay? including almost half of conservatives. Maybe we're closer than we think. Large majority of voters think the US should be using more solar and wind power. Should the United States be using these less, more, or about the same as we do today? 80% say more solar, 73% say more wind, 48% say more geothermal, then you get to 36 on natural gas, Hardly anybody wants more oil and gas, or more oil and coal. Okay? Americans want this transition. They do. And they want that transition to start now. And moreover, and you hear this all the time from the opponents, oh, yes, climate change, but we don't want to destroy the economy. And we don't want to you know, put millions of people out of work. Have you heard that? line anywhere lately? Okay, this is the line. They, this is what they've used over and over. This is what the auto industry used back in the days when they were fighting seatbelts. Doesn't that seem crazy now? No seatbelts, because it would destroy the auto, the auto industry. Well, they seem to be doing okay. Well, that's true around uh, the environment. And so one of the oldest environmental attitude questions has always been, you've all seen this, which do you prefer, environmental protection, even if it harms the economy and costs jobs, or economic growth, even if it harms the, the environment? Okay? I've always hated this question. It's a stupid question. It's a forced, false choice. So we changed the question. Do you think that protecting the environment improves economic growth and provides new jobs, reduces economic growth and costs jobs, or has no effect? 59% think this actually improves economic growth and provides new jobs, and another 21% says it has no impact. Only 18% of Americans say, by that line, that this is gonna destroy our economy and cost jobs. Including conservatives, 32 plus 28. Only 39% of them 
actually think this is going to be harmful. Okay. All right, but not everything is happy and glory. Sometimes you have to make trade-offs. Okay. When there is a conflict between environmental protection and economic growth, which do you think is more important? Protecting the environment, overwhelmingly. Okay, it's only among conservatives that you begin to see it, but it's basically a 50-50, roughly split. So maybe we have more going on than we think. Okay, so now I'm going to switch a little bit, if you bear with me for a second. Because one of the other things that we have been working on over the years is that we always got these questions. Okay, these national numbers are great, very useful, um, but I'm working in Washington. What can you tell me about Washington State? Or what can you tell me about Seattle? And the answer was always, I can't tell you anything because I've never done a survey there. And no one yet has been willing to give me $10 million to go out and do surveys in all 50 states and all 435 congressional districts and so on and so forth. Though I'm happy to take it if anyone here happens to have an extra 10 million. So what we did is we developed a model that's called the Yale Climate Opinion Maps. You're welcome to come. It's available for anybody to explore. It's an interactive tool. Uh, and this is what it allows us to do. It's a model that allows us to estimate public opinion at sub-national scales, at state and local scales, uh, and provide this kind of information that we never had before. And by the way, this is in, we've done validation studies and found that basically the model is, when you compare it against independent surveys, is about 98% accurate. That's actually crazy good. It's so good that we actually don't know which is more accurate because, of course, any survey you do has a margin of error around it. So here's a typical national result. 61% of Americans are worried about climate change. Okay, that's good. That's helpful. But now let's look at it at the county level. And suddenly you see, wait a second, there's so much more going on below the surface. Okay? And in particular, I mean, there's a lot here, but let me just point out my favorite, and that's Texas. Okay? What's your common stereotype of Texas? You know, very conservative, deep, ruby red, long led by climate denying governors like Rick Perry and others. Seems like the last place you could ever go to have a constructive conversation about climate change. But it's not true. These counties right here are more worried about climate change than many of the counties in California. So why is that? Latinos. And in fact, we've done multiple studies now over the years finding that contrary to common wisdom, that climate change is an issue that only white, well-educated, upper-income, latte-sipping liberals care about, it's not true. The racial and ethnic group in the United States that cares more about climate change than any other are Latinos. They're more convinced it's real, that it's human caused, they're more worried about it, they're more supportive of policy action. Okay, but my real point is coming to see Washington. So let's see if we can do that. Well, we'll go to Vermont first. There's Washington. Okay, so Washington overall is pretty worried. Here we are, King County. We are in King County, right? Yeah, yep, 70%, and that's nine, uh, plus nine uh, above the national average. Uh, and that's pretty much true everywhere, except over here in Garfield, which is just slightly below uh, the national average. Okay, so that's worry. You guys are mostly worried. Um, 
Global warming will harm future generations. Okay, so the darker red, the more, the higher the value, okay? So here we are, Seattle again, 81%. All the way down here, 64%, strong majority. Okay, will harm future generations. How about harm people in the US? Eh, not so much. How about harm me personally? No, not so much. Okay, uh, how about funding research into renewable energy? Oh my God, we all like that. In fact, I'm just gonna come out for a second because I want you to look at the whole damn country. There's not a county in the country where there isn't a large majority who support research on clean energy. Sorry, I gotta go back to Vermont momentarily. It's the Washington of the East. <laughs> Regulating CO2 as a pollutant, still pretty strong support. Strict CO2 limits on existing coal-fired power plants, the essence of Obama's clean power plan. Everybody supports that. Requiring fossil fuel companies to pay a carbon tax, support everywhere. How about schools should teach about global warming? There's something that a university ought to enjoy, and that's true everywhere, everywhere. Okay, how often do you, dis do you discuss global warming among your friends and family, at least occasionally? <laughs> and that's 51%, and you're 15 points above the national average. And perhaps most importantly, how often do you hear about it in the media? Rarely, rarely. And if we don't talk about it, how important can it be? I cannot stress this enough. I cannot stress this enough. If we don't talk about it, it can't be that important. This is why movements like Black Lives Matter and Me Too have been so revolutionary, because suddenly people are talking about things that have been always going on but weren't being talked about. And if we don't talk about climate change, then we're telling everybody around us that it just doesn't matter that much. So if there's one thing that you can do, and there are many things that you can do, but if there's one thing you can do leaving here, you can start talking about it. Okay. So the other thing I wanna uh, talk about briefly is um, this thing that we realized very early is that Americans don't have a single viewpoint on climate change or any other important issue. Uh, so then people too often divide the public into believers and deniers. Well, that does real violence to the truth as well. And in fact, there are very different audiences. And in our work over a decade ago, we identified what we call global warming six Americas. So let me introduce them to you. They are six groups that each come to this issue from a very different perspective. And uh, like Amy talked about, if you want to be an effective communicator, one of the first principal rules is know your audience. 
and then meet them where they are. Not where you are, but where they are. So the first group is one that we call the alarmed. These are people who are firmly convinced it's happening, it's human caused, it's urgent, they strongly support action, but many of them don't know what to do. They don't know what we can do as individuals, they don't know what we can do as, as communities, they don't know what we can do as states, as, um, as the nation or the world. And some of them are starting to say, is it too late? Which is a really dangerous attitude. Okay, to quote Henry Ford, those who think they can and those who think they can't are both right. Because if you think you can't, you won't. Secondly, there's a group we call the concerned. They think too, it's happening, it's human cause, it's serious, but they tend to think of it as distant. Again, distant in time, distant in space. So yeah, I would support action, but I don't see it as really that important. I don't see it as a, as a high priority. Then there are those that we call the cautious, 21%, uh, eh, kind of on the fence. Is it real or is it not? Is it human or is it natural? Is it serious or is it kind of overblown? They're paying attention, but just haven't really made up their mind. Then a small but important group we call the disengaged, who basically say, you know what? I think I once heard that term global warming, but I don't know anything about it. I don't know what the causes are, I don't know what the consequences are, I don't know what the solutions are. I really don't know much about it at all. So that's their barrier, is basic awareness. It's not ideology, okay? It's just, I don't know about it. Then a group we call the doubtful. These people think, eh, it's probably not real. And if it is, it's natural, just natural cycles. Nothing we had anything to do with, nothing we can do anything about. So I don't think about it that much. I don't see it as much of a risk. And then last but not least, those that we call the dismissive. Those 9% who are firmly convinced this is not happening, this is not human cause, this is not a serious problem, and most of whom are quite literally telling us that they're conspiracy theorists. It, they tell us it's scientists making up data, it's a UN plot to take away American sovereignty, it's a get-rich scheme by Al Gore and his friends, or it's just flat out a hoax. Okay? and many other such narratives like that. Now, importantly, they're only 9%. They're only 9%, but they're a really loud 9%. They're a really vocal 9%. They're a 9% that's really well represented in the halls of Congress. And they're a 9% that have made themselves look like they're half or more of the country. And you've all seen this. If you go on to, say, a USA Today article about climate change, good article, and then you look at the comments, and usually half or more of the comments will be from people of this perspective. So it's really easy to come away as a member of the public, as a journalist, or as a policymaker with the false impression that it's half or more of the country. It's not. They're just loud. And worse, we, the, the ones that actually get engaged and actually do the trolling on Twitter and all this stuff and so on that make themselves look like they're so much bigger is a tiny, tiny fraction of this number. So I'm not kidding when I say that basically we have all been cowed and intimidated into silence on this when we're letting literally the last hair on the tail of the dog wag the dog. Because the fact is, most people are willing to have a conversation about climate change. And yet we're all so afraid. I mean, climate change has become one of those issues that you don't talk about at Thanksgiving. Right up there with sex, religion, and politics, 
and climate change? Because nobody wants to piss off Uncle Bob. And it usually is Uncle Bob. Okay. All right, so this brings me to what I think is also really important about this moment in particular, is that this is about politics. And it's about, in particular, building a powerful movement to demand change. It's not enough to just have overall public opinion in your favor, okay? It's just not enough. You need a powerful, what's called an issue public, a group of people, a group of citizens who are focused, who are devoted to a particular issue and are willing to work together to organize to demand broader political and systemic change. And you're very familiar with issue publics. It's the pro or anti-gun uh, control movement. It's the pro-choice or anti-abortion movement. It's um, the pro or anti-immigration movement. Think of the NRA. That's a powerful issue public. We have 217 million adults in this country. You know how many NRA members there are? Four. Four million NRA members. And we've all seen the survey results like, you know, 90% of Americans support background checks on gun purchases. Does that go anywhere? No, because this four million is powerful. They, have, they, they are focused, they are laser focused, and they, wheel, they uh, wheel into action whenever they see anybody that even breathes about trying to uh, impinge upon something that they hold dear. Okay? Climate change doesn't have that. This is about 53 million Americans. And when we ask, would you be willing to join a campaign to convince elected officials to take action to reduce global warming, we see that the overwhelming proportion of the alarms say yes, they would do that. But very few of them are. This is a huge potential issue public. Four million are in the NRA with enormous political clout. There's at least 26 million. Let's take out the probably would do it. Let's not even include them. That's just saying it on a survey. Let's limit ourselves to just those that say they definitely would. That's 26 million people. Okay. Let's throw out half of them because they don't mean it either. 13 million. Let's split it again down to six or seven million. That's still bigger than the NRA. But the difference is that they're organized and we are not. And personally, I don't think we see the kind of systemic change in this country until you see that actually formed into a power, into a movement with muscle, political muscle. So why don't people do this? Why are we not organized from a, 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 a layperson perspective? So we've asked, what's the main barrier you have to contacting elected officials? And that's the number one answer. No one's ever asked. Are you kidding me? That's it? Nobody's ever asked? That's not hard. That's not like changing somebody's values or their identity or their worldview or something that really is hard. I'm not an activist, because what do people have in their head when they think of activism? They don't see themselves. They don't see people who look like themselves on the front lines of climate change. 
For too many people, when they think of who the messenger is on climate change, they think of scientists. I'm not a scientist. In fact, only one in 200 Americans say they even know a scientist personally. <laughs> Environmentalists, need I say more? <laughs> okay, you're all a bunch of tree huggers, I can tell. Uh, or liberal politicians, and one in particular. Anyone want to guess who that is? Yeah, of course you do, Al Gore. Okay. And as long as it's seen in such a narrow way of these are the people pushing for action, most people just say, hey, that's their issue. That's not my issue. I don't see myself in that. I'm not one of any of those. And I think that's actually one of the great strengths of climate change, is that we're seeing all these new voices coming into this community. It's really one of the most exciting things happened, that's been happening over the past 10 to 15 years is Everybody, I mean, from uh, doctors and military officials and uh, small businesses to giant companies to faith leaders uh, and so on and so on and so on, people on the front lines, minorities of all different types who are saying, you know what, this is our issue too. And in fact, in many ways, it's more our issue than it is uh, the people who've been carrying the water up to this point. That's exciting because then all these other people can start to see the people that are part of this uh, issue public and see somebody who looks like them. Okay, so I'm gonna end here with just translating some of these ideas in our own small way to this. So this is um, Yale Climate Connections, like I talked about. It's we do articles, we do videos, but we have a, a national radio program. These are 90-second stories, really short. Not a half hour that only plays on Saturday night at 10 o'clock that nobody's going to tune into. These are 90 seconds. They just get dropped into things like morning edition and uh, you know, the afternoon shows and so on and so forth. It just becomes part of it. And it's a new story every day, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, week after week after week. We've been doing it for four years and uh, over 1,000 stories playing uh, usually twice a day on about 500 stations across the country. Um, and all kinds of stories. And the point that we're trying to do is to highlight, find and highlight and amplify the voices of everyday people who are taking action. Here's a rabbi who blessed electric vehicles, okay? Uh, great story. Um, you know, how to reach young people. Uh, how tourism harms the climate. Is malaria actually more likely in the warmer US, et cetera, et cetera. So let me just give you a couple examples. So by the way, we do have a lot of stations here in Washington State. Thank you, Washington. Um, so let's start with, I'm going to use some local folks. Uh, hopefully some of you know Sarah Myrie. Uh, she's uh, a climate scientist here at uh, UW. And uh, she's bringing a whole new angle to this as a scientist, as you'll find in a moment. I'm Dr. Anthony Lazowitz, and this is Climate Connections. My place of deep happiness is being outside amidst mountains and oceans and animals and places where I feel the most connected to the natural world and coming to terms with the kind of change that's in front of us. I mean, we're talking about changing the entire planet forever. And there are major emotional and existential crises that I think scientists and citizens are grappling with. That's Sarah Myrie of the University of Washington. She studies how global warming affects marine ecosystems. Her work has serious implications, so she's unable to put it away when she goes home. For example, she often considers what the world will be like when her son grows up. 
And all of those emotions, all that commitment to my son's life in the future, it all informs the kind of professional that I want to be. Keeping the serious consequences of climate change top of mind can be emotionally taxing. But Myrie says it's helped her grow personally and professionally. It's really shifted my thinking from the world being about me and my life and my career to thinking about people in the future and the suffering that is possible and my moral responsibility to those people and to my family. Now that's a side of a scientist that you don't usually hear. And yet I can tell you there are so many scientists that are engaging this and struggling with this as an emotional issue. And I'll just say that this is part of the conversation. This is a critical part of the conversation. This is not just about the facts. The facts are important, yes. But this is an issue that's freaking the hell out of a lot of people. And it should. And we have to talk about these things with each other. Okay? in a spirit, hopefully, of love and compassion. But this is stirring up deep, deep emotions on all, across all those Americas that are engaged with this issue. But there's also great stories of people taking action. So here's just another one just down the road. I'm Dr. Anthony Lizowitz, and this is Climate Connections. Georgetown and South Park sit on opposite sides of the Duwamish River on Seattle's south side. They're hubs of activity, with factories, a shipping port, train tracks, and major roadways. The area has some of the region's worst air pollution. The poor air quality contributes to a life expectancy that is more than a decade shorter than some of Seattle's other neighborhoods. The pollution is super high. High school student Shalina Lal wants to change that. When she was 14, she joined the Duwamish Valley Youth Corps. It's a job training program that engages teens in projects that improve their community's health and environment. She helped install rain gardens, plant trees, and build a green wall. It's a plant-covered barrier that separates industrial from residential areas. The plants help filter pollutants out of the air. Lal did not plan to be an environmentalist. When I was growing up, I never thought I would be doing anything good. Honestly, my neighborhood's kind of scary. But my aunt grabbed me and she told me about this and I was like, okay, I'll try it. And I did and I absolutely loved it. Knowing that I did something like that, like helping a whole bunch of people, I couldn't ask for anything more. Okay. And literally we have hundreds and hundreds of stories of people taking action in their own lives from every walk of life doing amazing things. I've been in this field for 30 years. I had no idea how much innovation, how much creativity, the inspiring things that people are doing. I gotta say, this is a hard issue to plow every day, but man, this stuff gives me, it just charges my batteries. Because you realize you're not alone. Which may be one of the most important things that we recognize. Okay, so I'm gonna end with just one more from a good friend of mine, uh, Reverend Lennox Yearwood. Um, and a project that he did, and this is about the arts as well. Okay? The arts have a really important role in helping us as a culture deal with this. So here we go. I'm Dr. Anthony Lizowitz, and this is Climate Connections. From wildfires to hurricanes, extreme weather has devastated communities. 
Now, a new cover of an old song is bringing hope and help to those in need. Here comes the sun, little darling. When you hear this, here comes the sun, it touches you not only in your heart, but in your soul. It encourages you to keep fighting that even though sometimes this road looks so rough, this song reminds you that this battle is a battle that is worth fighting. That's Reverend Lennox Yearwood Jr., founder of the Hip Hop Caucus. The group created a record label called People's Climate Music and released a cover of the Beatles song by Grammy-nominated artists Jeremiah and Antonique Smith. All profits from the recording go to Hurricane Relief. Links to download the song are accompanied by a call for people to support communities on the front lines of climate change. There is no planet B, and so we pray that songs like Here Comes the Sun can touch not only the world, but a generation to inspire to action. Here it comes. Climate Connections is produced by the Yale Center for Environmental Communication. Learn more at YaleClimateConnections.org. Thanks, everybody. So I think we have some time for questions. Uh, so I think there are two microphones on either side, and happy to, happy to have a conversation. Or if anyone just has a question that they want to raise their hand on. Okay, go ahead. And Thank could, you, could you say your name, please? Oh, yes, sir. Yeah. Uh, my name is Jamin Shibley. Okay. Hi. And I want to thank you and welcome you, welcome you to the great state of Washington and for your wonderful uh, presentation. Wanted, my quick question is um, regarding the melting of Arctic sea ice. Yeah. Um, are you familiar, of course you must be, with the study done by the US Naval Postgraduate School several years back predicting that we'd have an ice-free Arctic in 2016 plus or minus three years? 2016? Yes. No. I don't know it. Okay. US Naval Postgraduate School. You might want to take a look. I'll, I'll be happy to follow up with you on that. But basically, I heard you mention by the end of the century, sure. but uh, the, the data point coming from that study, and of course the Navy knows a fair amount about the Arctic sea ice, its thickness and var variation over the years. Like the 2016 the, as in like two years ago? As in two years ago. Okay. The, 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 the study was published around, two, from, uh, completed around 2007, published in 2009. Okay. But, the, but the bottom line takeaway is that we're losing the Arctic sea ice far faster than even the scientific community is talking about. Uh, well, uh, I mean, I'm not an Arctic sea ice expert, so I would defer to my colleagues. And you're lucky because the University of Washington has some of the world's top people, so I would encourage you to reach out. But I can tell you the, the scientific community is very aware of how fast uh, the, the uh, ice is shifting and melting at both poles. Uh, and yeah, you're right. It's going much quicker in many ways than we thought. So yeah, thank you for your question. Thank you. Uh, yes. Hi there, Roz Mason with the CO2 Foundation. Yeah, hi. And I, I noticed in one of your clips that you referenced extreme weather. And one of my questions is, are you noticing that framing extreme weather tends to grab that immediacy in a better way? And okay, you're nodding, so tell us more. Yeah, such a good question. So 
So this is something we've been trying to study for a long time now, is at, to what extent does the direct experience of extreme weather events begin to take hold? And it's complicated because human beings are complicated. It's not like you just experience a wildfire or a flood or a drought and suddenly you go, climate change, okay? First of all, it has to be interpreted. It has to be interpreted. I mean, the only reason you know about climate change is because of science. It's not something you directly experience. You can experience some of the impacts, but you don't know that it's climate change until you've been given that concept, right? And so that's a critical piece, and it's a, I would call these, they're important teachable moments, okay? And so we've actually been working for the past decade with uh, building out a network of the nation's weathercasters, broadcast meteorologists, TV weather men and women, to help people make that connection, because they don't make it automatically on their own. That said, we also know that people in psychological terms can be what's called a motivated, uh, motivated rationality or motivated reason. And that is when you have a strongly held belief rooted in your values, maybe even in your identity, and you've got an emotional adherence to that belief, you are predisposed, as a human being, we all are, are subject to this, of being a motivated reasoner, looking for information that validates what you already believe, ignoring information that seems to contradict what you believe, okay? denying and disputing information that contradicts what you believe, or even distorting that information, saying, actually, no, that validates what my belief is anyway. Okay? And what we see is that for those people who are dismissive of climate change, they actually, when we, can, when we compare their views uh, and we know that they have experienced, say, a, a record-setting heat wave, and we compare them against other people in their same area who've experienced a record-setting heat wave, they are more likely to say, no, I didn't experience anything. Okay? And it's not connected to climate change because they've got such strong priors. So that's what I mean by human beings are complicated. So I would just say, as of now, we're finding that there is a signal. I, I'm willing to say that there's a signal emerging from the noise that Americans are beginning to starting to connect the dots. Okay? And really, it's the pattern. I think that's more important than anything. It's not the single event. It's the pattern. Something happens once, happenstance. If it happens twice, that's a coincidence. If it happens three times, that's the beginning of a pattern. And if you're getting one record-setting event after another, five, seven, 12, 20, 30 different record-setting thousand-year floods, right? People start going, whoa, what's going on? Might this have something to do with climate change? So the question is beginning to you know, gel in many people's heads. But that's where the interpretation is so important. Um, it's still dominated, however, it's dwarfed by the political. That's still the primary frame by which people are, are interpreting the issue. So thank you, great question. Uh, let's go back over here. Hello, my name is Peter Manos. Um, Peter? And I want to preface this question by telling you I do believe the numbers, but I'm, I, I'm just curious how you do the surveys. Ah, sure. Uh, so our surveys are nationally representative. Um, we uh, basically work with a, we're unique in that we have an online survey company uh, that has a, the only representative uh, panel. So they basically randomly selected people from across the United States and invited them to be part of uh, this, this large panel of about 40, 50,000 people. And that's who our basis of our samples are. So, 
They're very high quality, uh, better than most of the surveys that you see reported in the press, I'll, I'll say. Uh, but thank you, it's a great question. And they're all over 1,000 people randomly selected across the country. Okay, yeah. Yeah, my name is John Stafford. I'm involved uh, with climate change advocacy with a group in South Seattle called the South Seattle Climate Action Network. Okay. I have an observation that will lead to a question. Okay. You talked about the NRA and that's four million people that are laser focused and a lot of people haven't been asked to participate in work on climate change advocacy. advocacy. But I think um, you've missed a very important structural difference that, um, this is the observation, mm -hmm. that it's much easier to obstruct and preclude progress than it is to construct and make progress. And in the climate uh, work uh, that I've been involved with, or our organization has been, we find lots of people interested in coming in but get frustrated very quickly at seeing things like, well, we've put carbon initiatives on the ballot, they're not passing. Mm. We can't get floor votes in the Washington state uh, legislature. Many politicians are concerned about the trade-off between labor and the environment. We have a regressive tax system. Yep. And so we find people leaving because they're frustrated that they're more enthused than the people making policy, even within liberal circles. Yep. So my question is the following. Is your organization or you involved? I think there's a huge upside if there can be sort of constructed constructed statewide or national level efforts that start to coordinate some of these local groups yeah. and obtain some victories that raises the retention rate and the interest of people coming in so they're not coming in and leaving all the time. So, so that my question is, are, are you working on those things or? Okay. Yes, on lots of different levels. And I would just, I'm gonna come back to the kind of as an academic -y response because what you're ultimately talking about, so first of all, you're absolutely right. The NRA's primary goal is to say no, though not entirely. They're also passing things like stand your ground legislation in states and trying to just roll that out across the country and so on and so forth. So they're not always just saying no. Um, uh, secondly, that's what social movements are. Okay? All the major social movements, the abolition of slavery. Seriously, in 1830, if you were walking around saying, yeah, our goal is to abolish slavery, people thought you were nuts. It was the primary energy source for the entire economy of the, of the South. That was the energy economy. It wasn't fossil fuels. It was human bodies. Okay? Are you nuts? Why would you fight that? That's impossible. Okay? Women's rights, civil rights. Okay? Most recently, freedom to marry. Do you know Freedom and Mary lost 26 times before they finally won? So yeah, you gotta stick to it. But you're also right that many people need to feel, they need to see wins. They need, especially small wins. And so how do you find, as someone who's trying to organize people, the opportunity to get those small wins? And moreover, they don't have to necessarily be small wins that they themselves participate in. Those are the best, no question. But that's also partly what we're trying to do with this climate connections, is to see that in fact the winds are in fact happening all over the place. They may not be at the levels that we all know we need at the global scale, at the national level, for example. But there is so much good work happening at the state level, at the city level, at the county level, at the corporate level, uh, at the household level. I mean, there are winds everywhere. And so what we hope is that people can see that and feel 
a sense of, and another psychological concept here, efficacy. Okay. It's not enough to feel threat. Threat's important. You need to know that this is real and it's a serious problem. But that needs to be coupled with a sense of efficacy, which means that there are things that you can do, that you have the ability to do those things, and most importantly, that if you do them, it will make a difference. Okay? Because when people don't have that sense of efficacy, their tendency is just like, I don't want to get involved. I, I, I mean, I got a thousand other things I need to do. I can't focus on something I can't do anything about. So how do you build that sense of efficacy? That, I would say, is one of the grand challenges of organization. So yeah. OK. Hi, my name is Richard. Uh, Richard. Hi, Richard. Yeah, a couple things. I like the point that you had about uh, uh, people don't talk about this, yeah. right? So it's a taboo issue. So I, I've canvassed for 1631, and one of the things I've noticed is that I, I appreciate that. It, it kind of feels like an echo group here, because <laughs> but when I see out there, a lot of people don't know about it. And, and then some people are just they, just, they just hate me and other people for talking to them about it. So you know, you gotta, you gotta have some hope that you're making a difference. The November, the November 6th election's happening. We should all get out there and talk to five people. Following the example is even talk to people. Another thing I have a question for you is, yeah. uh, looking at other movements like uh, tobacco, gay rights, yeah. uh, even marijuana, is there an inflection point where all these little wins make a difference and we flip the, we flip the, the graph on them and then we have the power where there's hope and people yes. can say like, we're only 10% away, just yes. keep going. Yes. Thank you. Uh, that's such a great question, and just as climate scientists, this is one of the great advances in the past, say, 20 years in climate science, is recognizing that the climate system doesn't just, isn't that the slow, gradual, incremental warming process that someday will be dangerous. We know now, thanks to paleoclimatology and study of long-term Earth history, that in fact there are all kinds of tipping points. There are thresholds. When suddenly the system finally is that last straw on the camel's back, that that analogy, and suddenly the system fundamentally shifts. Okay? And that's one of the things that scares us, really scares us about the climate system is because we don't really know where those are and when we hit them. Okay? But that's just as true on the social side. Okay? And in fact, it happens even faster in many ways on the social side. And the, the problem is that you don't know always when it's coming. Okay? You, that's why you just got to keep plugging and plugging and plugging because you may be closer than you think. And uh, uh, gay marriage is a great example. Like I said, they lost over and over and over and over again until they finally got to Minnesota. And here's actually where they suddenly changed tactics. Okay? They did two key things in Minnesota. One, they reframed it. They stopped calling it gay marriage. Because to many people, when they heard that, it was like, OK, we're extending this right to this small group of people who, unfortunately, for too many Americans, are kind of like, mm, that's not me, or I don't even like what they do, right? Instead, they reframed the issue as freedom to marry. Freedom. They went right at the core of conservative values, about freedom to marry. And moreover, they had the big, audacious, crazy goal that they were going to have a million conversations about climate change, or I'm sorry, about, <laughs> yes, <laughs> about freedom to marry in the state of Minnesota. 
And they did. They went out and they had conversations. Not two-hour conversations, though they sometimes were. It often was as short as like five to eight minutes, talking to person after person. But they were values-based conversations. They were saying, have you ever loved somebody? What does marriage mean to you? Making that human connection with another person and saying, I want you to think about how important these are in your life. Have you ever been bullied? Have you ever been discriminated against in your own life? And what they found is that almost everybody has experienced that. And that once you help people feel that in themselves, then they were available and ready to have a conversation about what this means to this particular set of the community. The other thing that they did is that they actually made some of the lead spokespeople for this, this campaign not gay people. They actually had old, heterosexual, white-haired Christians, churchgoers, talk about why this was so important to them. Okay? And that was not easy for many in the gay community to accept. They were like, this is our issue. We have to be the voice. We have to be the messenger. No. No, you don't. You have allies. You have champions all around. Okay? How do you use messengers that actually have a greater ability than you do to connect to the people that you're trying to, to convince? Okay? So I think there's actually a ton of lessons that we can learn from that. Because climate change, in many ways, is, I think, an even bigger uh, issue than that was. I mean, this one, every single human being on planet Earth has a direct and real stake in this. Okay? Everybody does, whether you recognize it or not. So we have the ability, the opportunity, to have those conversations. So I think we may be closer than we think. And if we're smart about it, and we're strategic about it, we can actually start racking up wins. I know that's hard to believe at this moment, when things look pretty dark out there. But even in this state, I mean, I don't know what's going to happen on Tuesday. But my understanding is you're at 50%. And you need 50% plus 1. Somebody in this room could be the deciding vote. It could be that close. So it's not just about you going to the polls to vote. It's about you taking anyone you know and making sure they go to the polls and vote. You can expand your influence dramatically by going after the people and convincing everyone you know around you to vote. Okay? You all have that power. Oh, thank you. Great question. Yeah. Hi, my name is Katzi Pena, and I'm a graduate student here at UW doing environmental policy. And I made some observations about some things that you were discussing, um, primarily about how Latinos are, in fact, yes. very interested in climate change and involved in that process. And you were talking about how so the surveys that you do are representative of all the US population. Um, but what I saw that was missing from some of the data, especially that map, was that Puerto Rico wasn't there, and especially considering the fact that you were talking about climate change and the connection of natural disasters and also that number of the NRA having four million. Puerto Rico also has four million people, so that's a significant population that are US citizens. So yep. why isn't that represented in your data and also just generally in a lot of climate change data in the US? Great question. So Puerto Rico is represented in our data in terms of certainly the studies we've done with Latinos, because Latinos are part of, or Puerto Ricans are part of the Latino community. So we do look at that. And in fact, we are looking right now to see to what extent 
are there differences, of course, because the Latino community is not a monolith either, right? You know, Mexican Americans are totally different than Cuban Americans, which are very different than Puerto Rican Americans, and so on and so forth. So I think it's a really important uh, dynamic. Look, Puerto Rico has become, unfortunately, uh, a poster child, if you will, for what climate change actually means, right? I mean, we've seen uh, in gory detail what happens to a society when they get absolutely lambasted by one of these, these kinds of impacts. So one, it's certainly a lesson for the rest of us. Secondly, though, I don't know how Puerto Ricans respond to this. And moreover, unfortunately, they don't get full representation in the United States. Okay? And that's actually a, I mean, you want to change the political dynamic in this country? Get Puerto Rico to become a state. Think about that. And add Washington, D.C. to a state. That would fundamentally change not just climate change, but lots of other issues. Okay? It's that deeper structure of our politics that would that also is at play here. So anyway, that's the best I can say. So thank you. Thank you. Uh, yes. Hi there, uh, Sean Augustino. So first of all, I want to thank Richard. I came as for 1631 too, and please talk to everybody, especially in other parts of Washington, because we don't just want this to be a Seattle issue. It affects all of us. Um, and a bigger question, um, you'd started off earlier kind of showing those, the graphs of public opinion and how right after the start it had quite a deep tail off. And I'm wondering for 2009, um, did, did economic downturn and did fuel price drop play into those? And if so, are there, are there countermeasures when those bigger economic forces come into play? Yeah, great question. Okay, so we actually did a big analysis and wrote a whole paper on this, which I'd encourage you to come take a look at because there was a lot going on in that time period. So was it the financial crisis? Because remember that same period, the housing bubble pops, the financial crisis hit, unemployment goes up over 10%, major thing. And there's long been this assumption within environmental circles that when people are economically hurting, they're less likely to support environmental protection. Okay? It's long been argued. Um, you also had a major shift in media coverage. Uh, the media was t talking a lot about climate change in 2007 and 2008, and then it just drops. Okay, so maybe it was the media. Uh, there were also some cold weather events. Anybody remember the word snowmageddon? Okay, we've gone on, we've run out of superlatives. But yes, that were a couple polar vortex type events that uh, yeah, we know that some people respond to their recent experience. We looked at all of those. Turns out none of those had an effect. It was all pretty much politics. Um, people who literally lost their jobs or saw their home values go down or had unemployment rates increase in their own communities did not change their views about climate change. Okay? Where we surveyed the exact same people before and after. Um, that, didn't, that didn't do it. Uh, it wasn't media coverage, as far as we can tell. Um, it wasn't the cold weather that had happened uh, in the wintertime then. It really was the rise of the Tea Party, and what's called political elite cues, which is just a fancy way of saying that when political leaders speak, their followers follow. Okay? Not everybody is a partisan, by the way. Most Americans actually don't really care that much about politics. Okay? It's really just a relative few who are 
hardcore Democrats or hardcore Republicans. But for those that are, they tend to listen to what their leaders say and what their leaders are telling them is a real problem or is not a problem and so on. And so when Republican leaders in Congress and in and Tea Party or types started saying climate change is a hoax, you began to see, remember how I was talking about John McCain, right? As, as nominee of his party for president. Come 2010, he goes completely silent, as does Lindsey Graham, as does every other Republican who had been talking about climate change up to that point, because they were now afraid of getting primaried from their right. Okay? That's why the politics matters. And unfortunately, because the issue has become so politicized, it's those political leaders who are having the most influence on much of their, their followership. So anyway, thank you for the question. Yeah. Hi, I'm Claire. I'm a graduate student in public health. Hi, Claire. Hi. I think that the maps that have data on climate perceptions at the county level are amazing. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering if you have seen examples or you have ideas of how those could be put to use by nonprofits or by government agencies to drive change around climate action. Yeah, um, actually a lot of groups are using them. Um, so gosh, uh, we have uh, governments who are using them to figure out how to better communicate and better understand their own constituents. Uh, we have groups like Citizens Climate Lobby, great group organized around power, okay? Organized in every congressional district in the country and their sole job is to recruit volunteers, to train those volunteers, and to deploy those volunteers to lobby their local and government officials to take action on climate change. And to do so, which I personally really appreciate, with relentless politeness, okay? It's not in your face, it's not hostile. They, they actually go and they meet with Senator James Inhofe Climate denier in chief, and they've met with him time after time after time in a very gentle and yet relentless way. And they've actually formed good relationships with both him and his staff. And yeah, he still thinks climate change is a hoax, but you know, wind power? Well, I'm kind of open to that. Turns out Oklahoma is the Saudi Arabia of wind. <laughs> okay? So, um, so yes, we've seen a great piece by uh, the journalist John Sutter of CNN. He, he contacted me and said, okay, look, I want to do a story. I got my editors to tell me to, to give me the money to do a story. What's the most dismissive county in America? I said, I can't tell you the most, because I don't have that precision, but I can tell you the top 10. And so we gave him that, and he looked at it, and he said, ah, Woodward County, Oklahoma. I'm from Oklahoma. And so he went to Oklahoma, and he spent about 10 days traveling around this little a rural uh, county, Woodward uh, County, uh, trying to find somebody who believes in climate change. And he couldn't find anybody, okay? But it's a great piece. I would highly encourage you to go read it because it's funny and it's illuminating and you learn so much about what's going on in those parts of the country. Uh, so just another example. Um, so anyway, uh, oh sorry, I brought up the CCL example because they're actually taking this data and walking into the offices of those representatives and saying, did you know that 70, you know, 5% of your constituents support this policy? Okay. And always the answer is, I had no idea. Because elected officials don't actually know in most cases. Because no one's actually polling on climate change or clean energy in their districts. They think they know because they listen to what their friends say. 
and they listen to what lobbyists tell them, but they don't actually know what their own constituents actually think. Okay? And so that's been one of the, I think, most powerful ways that people have used it. And because you're a public health student, I'm going to change subjects real quick and take advantage of because it's something I didn't say before. But when I talked about those, those free associations, those images that came to people's minds, one of the most important things that we found in that whole study was what we didn't find. We find nobody thinks about human health. Nobody's making the connection between climate change and human health. It's like climate in one part of the brain and health in another part of the brain, and nobody's ever connected those dots before. And yet it's the health implications that are some of the most worrisome from a scientific standpoint. Okay? And so we have to talk about that. We have to make that connection. Okay? Here's how it's going to affect infectious diseases. Here's how it's going to affect asthma and allergies. One of the most popular stories we've ever done with climate connections that kind of connects with people isn't even the scary stuff like dengue and malaria and so on, which most Americans have no experience with. But we did a story about how it's, what it's going to do to poison ivy. Okay? It intensifies poison ivy. Oh my god, people get into that. Okay? Connect with people where they are. Okay? So anyway, thank you. Uh, I think we're getting close to end, but I'll take another one or two. Yeah. Thank you. <clears throat> Excuse me. My name is Joe. Hi, Joe. Hi. I want to congratulate you on, on presenting some pretty darn good information that helps all of us, I'm sure, and hopefully a, a, a lot of other Americans to really realize the extent how perilous the times really are. Yeah. And that comes to the point. I didn't hear you mention one issue regarding the United Nations IPCC, isn't that the International Panel of, uh, of Scientists who just last week right. released the report? And in, in my reading, in a pedestrian way, it seemed that no individual attempts, however flattering and even comfortable they are, will have any impact within the next couple to three decades at the most before the perilous conditions will become catastrophic. And the ramifications are such that we cannot rely on just educating and hoping that we can persuade the psychology of people to embrace over evolutionary decades but we have to have institutional, here's where the report said, isn't that right? Mm -hmm. We need institutional, systematic, radical change now. How are you, yep. as a scientist, yep. and being an old history student myself, I can remember sitting in this classroom about 25 years ago when another very important scientist, his name is Stephen Jay Gould, mm -hmm. was describing and talking about the systematic mythology that's being perpetrated in the public schools. And he felt this was a terrible situation regarding evolution in biology classes was being supplanted by creation biology, mm -hmm. which is a myth. Mm -hmm. And he finally came to the conclusion that sitting back in this radical situation, knowing how Americans are being miseducated, that he had to get out there. And he had personally became a cadre of other scientists a vanguard who started using the court system as well as the airways themselves, mm -hmm. getting out of academia and educate the people and then taking radical action. And because of his efforts, Alabama being one, Florida being another, they were able to get this change going radically. What 
do you suppose you can do with your fellow scientists to make this radical situation take place? Okay. <laughs> um, look, this is hard work, okay? So first of all, on the IPCC report, it is a dire report. It says that, at, that we are very, very close to going beyond the window at which point we can keep warming below 1.5 degrees C, even though much of the world has been fixated on 2 degrees C as the critical threshold. But the fact is there will be very negative consequences even at 1.5. But at 1.5, you'll still have some coral reefs. At 2 degrees, you won't, um, among other types of things. Uh, and they're not sugarcoating it. It's going to take a heroic effort to stay within 1.5. And personally, I have serious doubts that we're going to actually do that. I think we're going to overshoot. And I think we're going to have to come back as quickly as we can. Um, but how we do that is going to involve a whole lot of people from every walk of life, including scientists. Scientists do need to do all that. And in fact, scientists are increasingly saying, you know what, I can't just sit in the lab and do my work when I'm watching what's going on to my very field of study. I mean, scientists are seeing, you know, the ice cores I study are disappearing because the ice is disappearing. It's like we're burning the, out the, the libraries of Alexandria, uh, the amount of information that is locked up still in, in those ice cores and, and others. Um, so scientists are beginning to speak up in all kinds of ways that they haven't historically been comfortable with. And that includes a whole variety of things. It includes going out and educating the public. It includes working with policymakers more directly. It includes scientists that are engaged in some of these new lawsuits that are appearing. Our Children's Trust lawsuit is going on right now. I mean, if the Supreme Court lets it uh, continue. Uh, and scientists are going to be testifying. Uh, the, there's a whole series of lawsuits coming from uh, cities and states across the country against the fossil fuel industry um, to try to hold them responsible for some of the damages that are already being incurred by taxpayers in their communities. And scientists are playing a part in that as well. But in the end, this is not about scientists. Okay, this really is not about scientists. If you're waiting for us to solve and you know be the solution, I mean, please don't. <laughs> You're putting way too much on, on a very thin set of shoulders. Um, this is about all of us. Okay? And again, as I said before, that's one of the most exciting things to me that's happening in this space, is that you're seeing so many new voices coming into this, including I'll just take one as just one example, besides all the millions of people around the world who are acting on this now, are leaders like Pope Francis. And we actually did a study on the effect of Pope Francis, and it's called the Francis Effect. <laughs> because it turns out that he came to the United States, and by the way, I would highly encourage you to read Laudato Si, the encyclical, the letter that he sent to the world. It's a classic. We'll be teaching that in 30 years in universities across the country and around the world. It is a great piece of literature, and even though he's the pontiff, he doesn't pontificate. Okay? It's actually readable. And it's a beautiful thing that's actually incredibly, in some ways, fundamental and subversive. Because he goes right to the core of some of the biggest debates within uh, Judeo-Christianity, which is, how do you read Genesis? 
Do we have dominion over the earth to do whatever we want? Or are we stewards of the earth to take care of it because that's what God entrusted to us? That is a fundamental debate that has been going on in Judeo-Christianity for literally over a thousand years. And Pope Francis said, end of debate, it's stewardship. That's the proper interpretation. Okay? And when he came to the United States, and you all remember that because it was covered 24-7 for an entire week, what did he do? He went to the White House and he talked about climate change as a moral and religious issue. He went to a joint session of Congress and addressed the nation and said climate change is a moral and religious issue. He went to the United Nations and addressed the world's leaders and said climate change is a moral and religious issue. He went and he talked to young people from all over the world who'd come together and said climate change is a moral and religious issue for your generation. And people heard him. And moreover, it wasn't just Catholics who responded to him. It was people of all different faiths. Evangelicals responded to, to Pope Francis. Atheists like this pope. <laughs> okay? But that effect only lasted about six months because you got to keep hearing it. And so there's no formula here, but I will give you a formulation that's a useful guide. Simple, clear, compelling messages. Simple, clear, compelling messages. Repeated often, 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 at least seven times by a variety of trusted messengers. A variety of trusted messengers. When you start hearing it from over here and over there and over there and your uncle and your boss and in the media and so on, suddenly everybody's talking about it. And it's a completely different social experience. Last thing I'll just say, because I think we need to, to end here, is um, look, this, this issue is vitally important, but it's only part I would say only part of the ultimate question before humanity in this century. Okay? We have to get climate change right. But it's this bigger story that's actually the real critical one. How do we, how do we find a way to live sustainably on a planet with seven and a half to be nine or 10 billion people without breaking the life support systems on which we all depend in a way that is hopefully peaceful and harmonious and allows people to flourish along with many of the other creatures that we co-evolved with. Okay. This is the ultimate question of this century. We either get this right or we don't. And this is the next chapter of the, of the human story and we get to write it. It's not foreordained, it's not predestined. It is still entirely within our choice and our behavior to decide where that story goes. Okay. So I encourage you to all use your creativity and tell that story in your own lives and be part of something that is far larger than any of us. So thank you very much.